Welcome to the podcast of Azel Christian Church. We are a Disciples of Christ Church community in Azel, Texas. We invite everyone to be who you are with us, the doubting, the believing, the wondering, and everything in between. On this podcast, you'll hear our pastor, Reverend Ashley Dargai, preach on how the expansive and generative love of God is seen through Jesus, the prophets, the early church, and the faith forebears, and how this love helps us care for the world more deeply and faithfully. Sometimes it's messy and tough, but it's good news, and it is for you. Our scripture from today is Luke 4, 14 through 21, and it's on the back of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country, and he began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. So when he came home to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I have a particular hunger for history lessons about Azel Christian Church. When COVID first came into our collective consciousness, I immediately thought, hey, wait a second. This won't be the first pandemic this church has weathered. They were kicking during the flu pandemic of 1918. Now, I have yet to find any stories or records on what the church did during that time. Maybe Scotty can help me out. But for whatever reason, just knowing this was not the church's first pandemic brought me comfort. Right now, on TikTok, we're doing a series of videos from Scotty where she tells all sorts of stories about life at ACC, how this church came to be, their hand in the first library in Azel, how we shared ministers with the Methodist Church for a while, how women were running the show long before a woman pastored here for the first time. And any time one of you has a story behind a tree or a table or the chapel, I eat it up, savoring every bite, dreaming of its taste for days afterward. You all give voice to the stories that these walls would tell if they could. And I think I love these stories so much because there's a rootedness to them. It helps me for my short life to find something to hold on to. Fun fact, not one member of this church today was alive when the church began. Now, some are related to founding members, but the fact remains that this dynamic entity known as Azel Christian Church has been around longer than anyone living on this earth. ACC turns 139 years old this year. Isn't that something? I mean, 
Compared to some churches in the Northeast and especially in Europe and Africa, it's a young church, I know, but still, there is a beautiful history whose ivy-like arms run down the generations saying, here is a place for you. What new life will sprout up today? If these walls could talk here in the sanctuary, in the chapel, what might they say? What have they borne witness to? Do you think they have opinions about church music? Do you think they appreciate the candle lighting on Christmas Eve, or do they look warily upon the fire? How many sermons have they listened to? How many times have they heard, this is my body given for you? How many people have leaned on these walls for support as they listen to a friend pour their heart out? Do you think they beam with pride when we hang greens and banners on them for Advent? Do they feel bare when they're stripped down for Lent? What scriptures do these walls know by heart? I wonder if the synagogue walls where Jesus read the scriptures had stories like ours. Did those walls have memories of little boys running before service to get one more mad dash in before the readings began? Did they lean in a little closer as the prayer started, hoping to catch a little holy brilliance? How many times had they heard this scripture from Isaiah before? And was it like new every time? Did they know that this particular day when Jesus read it would be distinct? This is a classic story of hometown boy grows up and makes his family proud. Jesus had been teaching and healing and had come home to visit. And I'm sure all the men whose sons grew up with Jesus were excited to see him. His family members probably had big, silly grins on their faces having Jesus home. And on this day, he got up to read a scroll, leaning over the table to open it up because it was so big, and he was, read this old passage, probably familiar to everybody in the room. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now we know that this would become the basis of his ministry, his mission statement, if you will. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is not the end of the story, if you're familiar with this story, but it's where we end it today. And I wonder if these old words rolled off his tongue in the way that half-memorized passages do. I mean, did the assembly who heard of his wonder-working power hear this text and think, yeah, that's exactly what you're doing, Jesus. Do it here now, too. And Jesus' ministry, what would decades later become known as Christianity, was an outgrowth of his devotion to Judaism. Everything he did was in the bosom of Judaism. And we see that here in the text that he read. Now, the book of Isaiah is 
convoluted and details all the angst of what would become of Israel in the midst of Assyrian invasion and exile. In the face of inescapable terror and existential doom, the prophet Isaiah and his students penned these words. And instead of writing a shiny new mission statement with trendy language or flashy buzzwords, setting himself apart from the ancient tradition of his upbringing, Jesus made the old words of tradition his own. The word became flesh and made his home among us. Or as the message translation says, the word moved into the neighborhood. He does not produce a new garment, but makes a stitch into a well-worn, intricate or tapestry of faith. Now, scholars are mixed on whether or not this story actually happened. Is it Jesus shaping his mission as we read it here, or is the church through Luke writing this history retroactively? Either way, it's important for us to see how we owe our lives, our very faith, to people of Jewish faith. I mean, it's essential for us, especially in the hate-filled, violent times we live in, where synagogues are targets, to see that ours is not a triumphalist faith, a better, more sophisticated, more grace-filled version meant to replace or subvert Judaism, but rather a cousin who wears the hand-me-downs and has great familial affection for Judaism. For we all love the same God. We have a shared commitment to grace and mercy, justice and scripture. And for those of us who are Christians, we see in the story of Jesus the logos, the logic of God, embracing these words as if to say, the word lives here and now, today, and it is organic and fresh. It breathes and it moves in revolutionary ways. The word of God is neither dead nor dull. It is alive. When I was an English teacher, I taught Macbeth each year. It's a dark, dark play full of anguish and violence. And like many of Shakespeare's tragedies, the main character slowly goes mad. He has assassinated the good King Duncan in an effort to claim the throne. But what he does not anticipate is the prophecies that the three witches have put on Macbeth's life. This is where double, double toil and trouble come from, this play. They have prophesied that Macbeth will himself be killed. And amidst the closing in of his fate and the guilt he carries for murdering his friends, he starts to lose his grip on reality. And near the end of the play, Macbeth delivers a haunting speech about the meaning of life. He says, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle, for life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more.
It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. In the face of his guilt and suffering, Macbeth concludes that life is futile. It has no point. Tomorrow keeps coming, creeping in until the end of time, and the past, all our yesterdays, have just made a way for the fools to come down this pointless path. To Macbeth, life is just a shadow. It's just a brief performance that ends too soon. It's a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, but ultimately signifying nothing. Of course, Macbeth has committed heinous crimes in this play. Murder, treason. He has brought most of the suffering on himself and on Scotland. He's not to be emulated or admired, and that is clear from the very beginning. But I was amazed at how refreshing this monologue was to some of my students. They would write whole essays about it, wondering if Macbeth was right. I mean, if the past is guilt-ridden and horrifying, and the future is frightening and bleak, bleak, what else is there? Where could they look? If all the world's a stage, as the bard himself said, then does anything we do matter? Teenagers ask these questions. Now, I thank you for indulging this former English teacher on a trip down Shakespeare Lane probably won't be our last jaunt down here together. But I bring Macbeth up because this obsession with time and what it means has been around for a very long time. Shakespeare wrote in the 1600s. Today, things like the climate crisis is here, the pandemic is here, and it wasn't a thing when Shakespeare walked the earth. But he had other worries right? High mortality rates, polluted water. The plague shut down his show two seasons in a row. Sounds familiar? And I appreciate this interrogation of what we're supposed to do with our lives when the past feels intangible and the future is out of reach. These questions feel timeless, even though this Scottish play has been performed many, many times over the centuries. J.D. and I watched the newest version made for screen last night with Denzel Washington. It had the feel of an ancient Greek tragedy with desolate wilderness and austere gathering places. My favorite version is still Patrick Stewart's performance, which is set in a 1980s-esque autocracy. The British actor Alan Cummings has a creepy tech-infused version the Royal Shakespeare Company has put this on as a psychological thriller. And even the more classic interpretations of the play have all had their differences, playing on the subtleties of the day, the actors, the stagehands, the set. There are times when Macbeth's monologue feels dramatic and hyperbolic. But there are also times that I ask these questions with him where I think of a brief candle being blown out, or a shadow walking on a stage, or a shapeless tomorrow creeping into the door.
The concept of today feels difficult some days because we hope for the past to return or we hope to return to the past, whichever it is. When things felt simpler and more straightforward, when our loved ones were still with us, when the rifts that are so pronounced now were easy to, easier to ignore. And tomorrow, well, it's unknown and uncertain. Tomorrow has felt like a fool's errand for literally years now, waiting for things to get better, to return to normal, for real life to resume. I mean, someday is a seductive promise, but isn't it ultimately a siren song? When have we ever gotten yesterday back? In a way, our lives have felt like they're on hold. Proverbs says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. I wonder if your heart feels sick too. But if we're talking about the way language gives form to our lives, then we should also note that the word scripture can also be understood as script, a drama of the word made flesh, words on a page brought to life by what we say and do. Each time these words are read, we get to interpret them for our time today. We are the cast, the crew, the orchestra, this is our setting. How will we bring these words to life today? Jesus says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Perhaps as if to say, you do not have to defer your commitment to this life for an easier time. You do not have to wait until things feel right or safe or normal. You do not have to look back and think, this version was the best one or that one was the right one. If only we could go back. Today, this word is true. Be here now. Here is your script. This is your scene. Reimagine this drama anew. And step into the light now. It's your line. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Azel Christian Church podcast. Azel Christian Church exists to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through meaningful liturgy during worship, a public witness through outreach in the community, the nurturing of the spiritual life of every age group, and the witness of each member through discipleship, baptism, and the sharing of resources. To support this podcast and the ministries of Azel Christian Church, visit azelchristianchurch.org. Here you can contribute through giving online or find our Venmo information. If you're looking for a church or simply want to talk to one of our ministers, contact us through our website and we will be in touch. Talk to you soon.